All right, Mark 15, we're to a new chapter. We'll go through this chapter in a few different parts, and then we'll have one message in chapter 16, because chapter 16 ends in verse 8, although you've got some more words in your Bible. You'll hear more about that later. So, we're, we're winding down in our study of Mark, been in this for two years, and uh, I am eager for what we have next, but I also don't want to leave Mark yet. So, um, th- these passages are rich to Christians, have been for 2,000 years. Uh, these passages are tough to read, tough to think about. You can certainly gloss over them if you want, but if you really think about all that they mean and all that they're saying, it's, it's tough to take in. Mark 15, 1 to 15 Uh, I've entitled this message, Irony Surrounding King Jesus. Irony Surrounding King Jesus. Let's listen to the text as I read. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked Him, Are you the King of the Jews? And He answered Him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Irony surrounding King Jesus. I've entitled this section, going through Mark 15, The Death of the King, The Death of the King. Now, so far in the Gospel of Mark, if you've been tracking with us all along, there have been two prominent titles that have kind of been featured by Mark. One is Jesus as the Son of God, God's own Son, deity Himself being deity in human flesh. We see that right away in Mark 1.1. Mark kind of tells us, this is what I'm going to show you. Jesus is the Son of God. Then throughout the Gospel of Mark, we hear of Jesus as a Son of Man, giving the Jewish reader, the, the thought that, ah, Daniel 7, son of man, victorious conqueror, the one who will rule the nations. But Jesus would say strange things like the son of man is going to be handed over to the Gentiles and be killed, be executed, and rise again. So the son of man, Jesus is saying, is not just a victor, he's also a sufferer first. That would have puzzled his Jewish audience. So son of man, son of God, two prominent titles. And then not until really verse 11 do you get this idea of king, chapter 11 I should say, 
Chapter 11, Jesus rides in on the colt of a donkey like a king would ride into a city, a, a city that's his own, coming back from war, coming to, to cleanse his hometown city and rule from this city. So Jesus is thought of more as a king here. And then here in Mark 15, all of a sudden you get king, 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 king. That hasn't been the prominent feature so far in Mark, but you see it in here. King is referenced eight times in this one chapter. King of the Jews, king of Israel, kingdom of God. In uh, the next passage next week that we get to, Lord willing, in verses 16 to 20, you'll see the Roman soldiers mocking him, making a mockery of him as king. Here he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate says to the crowd, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And then he says, what shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? Clearly king of Israel, king of the Jews, Jesus as king is the theme of Mark. And we're going to notice that this king, the king of Israel, the king of the world, dies in this chapter. So this is the death of the king. Now, particularly in this passage, verses 1 to 15, we see irony. There's irony all throughout this passage. And I'll give you the definition of irony just so we're on the same page, okay? This is from some dictionary. can't remember. Uh, the one from Cambridge, that one. Irony. A situation in which something which was intended to have a particular result has the opposite or a very different result. Hmm, that was ironic, we might say, about something like that. For example, you live in California, you're tired of your blue state, you're tired of, of the overpopulation in California, so you move to Arizona, a blue state with Prescott as big as it's ever been. How ironic, all right? I'm not meaning to get you down this morning, okay? That's, and that's not a political statement. I'm just saying, oh, the irony, okay? That's ironic. Well, we see irony in this passage. Jesus is the king of the Jews, and he's accused of being a criminal. Jesus is the king of the Jews, and he's condemned as a criminal. That's ironic. So that's how we're going to see this passage. Two ironies surrounding Jesus' trial before Pilate. Here's the first one. The innocent king is accused. Jesus, you know this, has never sinned in his life. Jesus, being the Son of God, one with God, is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, has never sinned, but in verses 1 to 5, he's accused. Verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. I'll remind you from last week, we've had the Jewish kind of pretrial, middle of the night. They get much of the Sanhedrin together. It's not a formal trial, but they're kind of looking for charges they can pin against Jesus. And they determine that they're going to pin on him the charge of blasphemy. Now, that's not going to go over well with Rome. You know why? Who cares? Who cares what you Jews think some uh, one of your Jewish brethren has done? Who, who cares that you think he's blasphemed? That doesn't matter to Rome. So, the Sanhedrin needs another charge to get Rome's attention. And so, the Sanhedrin formally comes together and determines to find this charge against Jesus that they can bring to Rome. So there's this kind of formal morning meeting. This would be, if you compare all the gospel accounts, the third Jewish trial. And what are they doing? They're holding a consultation with the elders and scribes and whole council, 
And at the end, they bound Jesus and lead him away and deliver him over to Pilate. Now, we don't know what their charge is yet in verse 1, but we'll see it in verse 2. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So, they're telling Pilate that Jesus is claiming to be the king of Israel. You know why that's a big problem, because it's Passover time. And the Jews celebrate their release, their freedom from Egypt back in the day, thousands of years before. And they're celebrating God delivering them from their Gentile oppressors. Well, what do they have in front of them now? What's true of their life now? They've got Gentile oppressors, Romans. And those Gentile oppressors don't allow them to worship like they want exactly. They don't allow them to control the land that God gave to them. And so, it gets Rome's attention when someone claims to be a king of Israel seeking to free Israel from her oppression. So, the Jews know that this will get Pilate's attention, this will get Rome's attention, and so they turn over Jesus to Pilate. Now, in Mark 10, Jesus told His disciples that they will condemn Jesus, the Jews will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. Jesus said this exact thing would happen. Let me give you another important piece of information. Throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, when they would sin against God, they were delivered over to the Gentiles. The northern kingdom delivered over to Assyria. The southern kingdom delivered over to Babylon. Those are two big parts of the Old Testament. And so, the people of God, when they think of being delivered over, it's as if God is going after them and punishing them for their sin, and He's letting the Gentiles have their way with His people. Well, here, they deliver over Jesus to the Gentiles. Evidently, Jesus is wrong. The Gentiles are in control of Him now. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So, evidently, that's what they led with. That's what they were telling Pilate. This one is claiming that he's the king of the Jews. And he, Jesus, answered him, you have said so. Jesus affirms what came out of your mouth is right. You have said so. Jesus is no longer keeping his full ministry secret, no longer keeping the fact that he's the king secret. You said so. It's interesting if you compare the gospel accounts, Pilate's inside his palace with Jesus, then he goes outside of the crowd. We know the Jews stayed outside because they didn't want to defile themselves inside of Pilate's temporal residence there in Jerusalem. And so, there's this going back and forth. Pilate's going to Jesus, asking him, going out to the crowd, coming back to Jesus, going out to the crowd. There's a back and forth. Here, Pilate's inside speaking to Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. So they led with, he's claiming to be king. Pilate, he can can go after Rome. He might lead an insurrection. You've got to deal with this man. But they're also accusing him of many things. Claim to destroy the temple maybe was one of the accusations. They had a lot of accusations they're levying against him. Verse 4, Pilate again asked him, Again, if you follow all the gospel accounts, he comes back in. Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. You can hear them outside. See all that they're saying about you? Do you seriously have no answer to these accusations? Evidently, Jesus simply said, you've said so, you've said it so, and he didn't answer the other accusations. He's not dealing with the other accusations. He's just claiming that, yes, that's right, he is the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. 
See how many charges they bring against you? Verse 5, but Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. If you are wrongly accused and you're going to lose your life and people are laying these charges against you that aren't true, you're going to speak up. And he doesn't. He's intending to be killed. He's intending to die. That's the Father's plan. He doesn't try to get out of it. He claims and and affirms Pilate's claim, who he is, yes, King of the Jews, but he's not going to try to get out of false accusations. He's going to give himself over to death. Again, I, I keep referring you back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says that he Open not his mouth. That was a prophecy written about the coming Messiah, and here it's true in Pilate's praetorium. He opened not his mouth. The innocent king is accused, and he takes it, takes the accusations. Some of them, one of them in particular, is ironically true. They're they're mocking him as king of the Jews. They don't think he's king of the Jews. They're saying he's claiming to be king of the Jews, so he's a threat to you, Rome. But ironically, it is actually true. He is the king of the Jews. And he is a threat to Rome. He's also a threat to the Jews. He's a threat to any who reject him. He is the king. Psalm 96, Israel's own hymn book, their own songbook, They sing these words, and they sing them to each other. They sing them to the community of faith. They say, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Brothers and sisters, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Well, these people from Jerusalem right here are saying among the nations, the Roman Empire, they're saying to the nations, the Lord is a criminal. They're violating what their own hymn book says. They don't believe that this one rules, this one reigns, this Jesus of Nazareth is the one who is Yahweh. This is the Son of God. This is the Son of Man. This is the King of Israel. They don't believe that. So they're treating this king as a criminal, and they're accusing him before Pilate. Now, I've told you as we've gone through Mark, I believe there are a lot of reasons that they would have wanted Jesus dead. Certainly, he affected the chief priest's control of their income from the temple, Jesus came in and rebuked their leadership, I mean, in very clear and public ways. You don't say things like that to scribes, but He did. Stood in the temple and rebuked the Sanhedrin. Stood in the temple, rebuked the elders. Stood in the temple, rebuked the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I mean, He's rebuking Israel, the leaders of Israel. There are a lot of reasons they would want Him dead. But I also told you back in Mark 1, there's also another big reason they would want Him dead. Because just a week earlier in Mark chapter 11, just a week earlier, he came in and everyone's hailing him. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of our father David. Blessed is the one who comes like like a messianic king. They think he's coming to free Israel, free the Jews from their Roman oppression. And I told you that 150 years before Jesus, a conquering Jewish hero rode into Jerusalem. And what did he do when he rode into Jerusalem and rode into the temple complex? He cleansed the temple from all Gentile defilement. Jesus rode into Jerusalem and didn't go after the Romans. He went after the Jewish leaders. There's a big reason to want to kill him if you're a Jewish leader. You're supposed to come and save us politically. 
but you're coming after us. That's enough to say, you're not the one I was waiting for. These people want Jesus dead for a number of reasons, but certainly they want him dead because he's not the king or the conqueror that they thought he would be. For three years, he's been feeding people out of virtually nothing. For three years, he's been healing diseases. For three years, he's been making blind people see, which is something that didn't happen in the Old Testament but was, was reserved for a time for the Messiah. Well, the Messiah is here, and he's healing blind people. For three years, they've been seeing this, and they're excited. They're getting ready. Jesus can give me things. Jesus can give me food. Jesus can give me healing. Jesus can give me victory over Rome. Well, he comes in and doesn't go after Rome. He goes after Jerusalem. I don't know if I'm behind this, Jesus. Today, people want Jesus to fix certain problems, but they don't want to follow him for who he actually is. That may be true for some of you. You may want salvation, want eternal life, want escape from hell, want the eternal joy of heaven. You may want all of that, but you don't want his teaching on sexual ethics. You may want salvation, but you don't want to be meek and gentle. You think that's a weak. You may want salvation, but you don't want to have to witness for him or speak up for him. You may want salvation, but you don't want to be a forgiving person. You may want salvation, but you don't want to be part of a church. You may want what you want, and you may want Jesus on your own terms, but there's only one way to come to Jesus on his terms. He's master. He's Lord. You have to come to him on his terms. So I say this so that you're clear in your mind about whether you're following Jesus or not. You can't follow him because you want certain things or say you're following because you want certain things but refuse to follow him in certain areas. Now, are you saying salvation comes by me following Jesus perfectly? No, not at all. Salvation is by his grace alone. But in every would-be disciple, there's a willingness to follow Jesus. When he says, this is how you handle your money, this is how you handle uh, marriage, this is how you handle this or that, you say, I want to follow. I may stumble, but I want to follow. I want to follow you. There's a willingness to come to him. The rich young ruler was very willing to follow Jesus. Hey, tell me, tell me what I need for eternal life. And Jesus knew that his problem was not only self-righteousness, but also that he loved his money. So at the end of that account, Jesus says, give all your money to the poor. And he went away sad. So are you following Jesus on his terms or are you like the crowd? For Jesus one day, but he's not giving everything I want, or he's telling me to trust him for things I'm really not comfortable with. So at the end of the day, you're not following Jesus. That's a lot of this crowd. Reminded of Jonathan Edwards' words, one of America's most famous, capable, great theologians. He said this, and it just my prayer is that these would be your words. The crowd, so fickle, would follow Jesus to a certain extent, but then when he, his teachings became difficult, they'd leave. Then they wanted him cru crucified. I pray that these types of words would be your words. Edwards wrote one day when he was just kind of recalibrating his, his mind spiritually and thinking through his life, he said this, I claim no right to myself. No right to this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me. Neither do I have any right to this body or its members. No right to this tongue, these hands, these feet, ears, eyes. And then this phrase. 
I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and told Him that I have given myself wholly to Him. You see in the crowd this willingness earlier to follow Jesus to a certain degree, but now He's not doing all that they wanted Him to do. He's not giving them all that they thought they should have. He's critical of them. He's pointing out flaws, and so they are fickle. They're not truly His followers, His worshipers. I would just encourage you, if that, any of that is you today, take Edward's words for yourself and tell the Lord today, I've been to the Lord today and told Him that I've given myself wholly to Him. Give yourself entirely to the Lord. So the innocent king shouldn't be accused, but ironically, he is. There's a second irony surrounding Jesus' trial before Pilate. It's this, verses 6 to 15. The innocent king is condemned. So it's getting worse. Not only is he accused, but in these passages, or these verses, especially verse 15, there's kind of the verdict, he's actually condemned. It's one thing to be accused, but that accusation sticks, and he's condemned. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. You remember that the feast of unleavened bread, which lasted a week, coincided with the Passover, which was this day, this Friday. At this feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. In a moment, we'll get to Pilate's history with the Jews. It's very interesting. But he had a He had a regular practice from his time of ruling, probably started sometime after 26 AD when he started ruling Judea, ended in 36 AD when he stopped ruling Judea. Those years, some of those years, he made a practice of at the Passover, he would release for Israel one of their prisoners. Usually it was a prisoner who had committed insurrection and gone after Rome. So it's Pilate politically kind of giving them something so that they would kind of use that for good faith in the future. This man shouldn't have done this, but I'll give you one of your own. Let's keep things, you know, kosher here. Let's keep things above board. You don't challenge us. We're letting you do what you want. So that's what Pilate would do every year at this time. Verse 7, and then Mark introduces Barabbas to us. The crowd doesn't talk about Barabbas yet, Mark, the narrator, the writer, introduces us to Barabbas. It's almost like, keep the name Barabbas in the back of your head. Verse 7, and among the rebels in prison, rebels, he would have been a rebel toward Rome. Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, so he evidently killed someone who was Roman in an insurrection where a number of the Jews were going after Rome. And it's actually, uh, Mark calls it the insurrection, His audience in that day would have known about this insurrection. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Mark introduces him to us, and then he leaves in verse 8 and goes on to something else. But just know this. Matthew says that this man was a notorious prisoner. His name means son of a father or son of the father. Remember Mark 1.1? Jesus Christ. Son of God. Jesus is the Son of the Father. Barabbas is a man in prison for doing what these Jews are saying Jesus has done or will do, lead an insurrection, a murderous insurrection. Jesus isn't going to do that. Jesus never claimed to do that. 
But Barabbas did do that, and his name is, ironically, son of the father. Verse 8, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Hey, you do this yearly thing. You release to us a prisoner. We want you to do that again. Now, let's look at Pilate's relationship with this group. Pilate became prefect, if you will, the, the leader of, of, of Judea. Remember, Judea, this region, Rome had lots of regions. This one region controlled by Rome. So, Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar, the emperor of Rome at the time, sent Pilate to lead Judea. Now, Pilate angled his way toward that leadership position. Pilate was actually rather a nobody in the Roman Empire, but he married well, which is what you want to do to get into power. He married well, and he became the prefect, the leader of Judea. And he was so for about 10 to 11 years, 26 to 36 AD. Again, the Roman Empire controlled by Tiberius, and Tiberius made Pilate the Roman leader over Judea, this region where Jerusalem was. Now, the Jews thought that this was their land. Rome was the foreign oppressors. They were the pagan Gentiles, and this is our land promised to us back in Genesis 12 and our father Abraham, and yet we don't have control of this land entirely. So, you see why, and we've gone through this throughout Mark, you see why there's been friction between the Jews and Rome. Early in Pilate's history with the Jews, this was actually done in the first year of Pilate's reign, 26 AD, Pilate brought in these standards, the, the, these signs with the images of emperors. Now, Roman emperors were thought to be gods. So, in the Jewish way of thinking, he's bringing false gods, these signs of false gods, and he's putting them within eyesight of the temple. This is a big problem to the Jews. This violated their law against images. Now, Pilate's home wasn't Jerusalem. He would be in Jerusalem every year at this time. Why? I told you before, if there's going to be a time where there's a Jewish revolt against Rome, it's going to be probably on a weekend like this, Passover. So, Pilate would always come during this weekend, but Pilate didn't live here. Pilate lived 70 miles away, Caesarea Maritima. That's where he lived. Well, the first year of his reign uh, in 26 AD, he, he sees to it that these standards are brought into Jerusalem with these emperors, these gods in view of the temple. The Jews hate that, so they literally march 70 miles to protest this. In 26 AD, a group of Jews marched 70 miles, and they protested out, they protested out of, uh, right outside of uh, Pilate's home for five days, protesting what he did in Jerusalem, what he's doing in Jerusalem with these standards, these signs, these images. Pilate doesn't give in right away. He threatens to kill all of them. And what did that crowd do? He, he threatened to bring them and to execute them. So they bore their necks. They showed him their necks, basically saying, kill us. Have our necks. We're going to stand up for this. Pilate then listened to his advisors who said, hey, why don't you take those things out of Jerusalem? And so he did. So Pilate suffered a political defeat right as soon as he started his rule in Judea. That's one. Three other missteps. Second misstep, Pilate killed some of the Galilean Jews in the temple. You read about this in Luke 13. Pilate killed some Galilean Jews in the temple. Third, Pilate took revenues one time from the temple. Now, the chief priests controlled the revenue in a sense, but Rome, Pilate, had control over that. 
Pilate took some of the revenue from the temple in order to build an aqueduct, get water to Jerusalem. You know, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know how important it is to get water there somehow. Pilate took some of the money from the temple to build an aqueduct into Jerusalem. The people objected, the Jews objected that their money shouldn't be used for that. They objected, and Pilate sent his men to beat some of these objectors. Get this straight. Pilate's no friend of the Jews. Pilate's no friend of the chief priests. They don't like Pilate, yet here they are trying to cozy up to Pilate to get him to do what they want him to do with Jesus. Fourth, black mark on Pilate's political problems here. At one point, this was kind of the final straw, he hung golden shields in Herod's palace which bore the name of the emperor or the deity, and word got back to Tiberius Caesar about this. So he took, again, these shields. This is a common practice. Takes these formal decorative shields that represent military victory, and they, what do they have on them? The name of their god, their deity, their emperor. I don't know which emperor it was, but he hangs these shields up in the palace of of, uh, Herod, and that's, again, that's the same thing that he did in 26 AD that the Jews hated. So they complain directly to Rome. Somehow word gets to Tiberius Caesar. They go over Pilate's head and they get the word back to Rome. The emperor of the world, the leader of the world, Tiberius Caesar. And Caesar is so sick of what Pilate's doing. There's this conflict going on. Hey, just keep the peace over there in Judea, okay? Tiberius Caesar threatens Pilate to remove him from his position. You know when that happened? 32 A.D., We're now in 33 AD. So Pilate's job has just been threatened by the leader of the world, and so Pilate's going to make sure that no other disruptions happen. So as you go through this passage, you see Pilate doesn't think Jesus is guilty. But what does he end up doing? Condemning Jesus as guilty, giving him over because he's afraid politically of the Jews. That's the context that we're in. And the crowd came up to Pilate and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. That's all that's behind that verse right there. This is political pressure. In fact, in John 19, 12, they say, if you release this man, Jesus, if you release this man, the crowd says, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's, Tiberius Caesar. You see the pressure Pilate's under here? Verse 9, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Because he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. He was right. It was out of envy that the chief priests delivered him up. We've learned that. The chief priests see the people following this Jesus. There is envy there. He's right. Verse 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have them release for them Barabbas instead. Mark's introduced us to Barabbas earlier. Now Mark's showing us these chief priests among the crowd stirred up the crowd. The word, you ever take a soda before you open it and shake it and then open the top? Peace doesn't come out. Chaos comes out. Okay, that's the word. The chief priests shook up, stirred up the crowd so that they were saying, give us Barabbas. He just said, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Give us Barabbas. Now, verse 12, and Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? Kind of getting in there and, you know, egging them on, provoking them a little bit. 
What shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. <laughs> the, the word means, the verb means that they continued to cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Their way of killing people, stoning, crushing someone with stones. The Roman way of killing people was more gruesome than that, was crucifixion. We'll get to that more later. They call out for Rome to do what Rome does to insurrectionists, to people who lead revolts like Barabbas, but they call out for Pilate to crucify Jesus because they're saying that he's one who's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. He's claiming to be king. He's claiming to be one that's going to overthrow you. You crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Again, in some way a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 Verse 9 says, he, the Messiah, the promised one, had done no violence. Pilate says, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more. They don't answer his question. What evil has he done? Kill him. They don't give him an answer. Just kill him. Just crucify him. The pressure is mounting. It's not just the chief priests now. It's the crowd going after Pilate, pressuring him to crucify Jesus. Verse 15, so Pilate, and here you go, wishing to satisfy the crowd. You could almost put these parentheses there to save his own job, to save his own position. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them the son of the father. Released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, you need to know Barabbas was a notorious prisoner, but to many in Israel, to many, to many of the Jews of this time, he would have been a hero. This is what they wanted. They wanted someone to overthrow for them Rome. And Barabbas evidently at some point, at some insurrection, was part of a group that murdered and tried to overthrow Rome. Barabbas wouldn't have been a bad guy in their eyes. Silently, maybe not publicly, they would have viewed this guy as a hero. Give us Barabbas. That's the one they claim. That's the one they ask for. They ask for Barabbas. We want Barabbas back. So they're asking Pilate for a guilty murderous insurrectionist, and they want Pilate to take and kill an innocent, actual king of theirs. That's the irony here. Some of you have seen Robin Hood, heard the story of Robin Hood. Maybe you've seen the, the Disney movie Robin Hood, the foxes. Robin Hood's a fox, evidently. My favorite Disney movie. Robin Hood steals from the wealthy, steals from the prince who's overtaxing the people, preying on the poor. He steals from that person to give to the poor. And so Robin Hood is a criminal, but in the eyes of the people, he's a hero, Barabbas. Criminal, murderer, but in the eyes of the people, he's a hero. Jesus, who should be their hero, who they should be listening to, who would rule them rightly, who would shepherd them toward life they condemn. They, not that they have any formal powers, but they say crucify him. And in verse 15, Pilate agrees. Pilate condemns him ultimately to death. Now, the passage says in verse 15 that he scourged Jesus. Three types of scourging 
in the Roman Empire at this point. The first type, a, a, a more of a minor beating. The second type was a beating that was like, okay, you're going to be beaten and then released. So it was, it was less severe than the third type, but more severe than the first type of beating. The, the second beating was like, okay, this is, this is your penalty for your, for your law-breaking. going to beat you significantly, and then you're released. In fact, Pilate brings this up to the crowd in Luke. He says that he would, he would beat him and release him. He kind of brings that option to the crowd. They don't want to hear that option. And so what happens? Pilate condemns him to be crucified, and he scourges Jesus prior to the crucifixion. That's the worst type, the third type of scourging in the Roman Empire. What was it? It was where you beat them so bad that their body is so pulverized that they, <clears throat> that they excuse me, die more quickly on the cross. That's this type of beating that he gives him. It was a wooden handle, had leather, leather whips coming off of it, and had chunks of bone and metal inside of it. The perpetrator would either kneel on the ground or kneel, have his hands bound against a post, and the person who was whipping them, this person standing with hands against the post, the person whipping them would whip them like this and pull the whip back, and it would rip open the flesh. You could see the muscles quivering. The muscles would be weakened. You could see, in many ways, organs exposed. Blood would pour out, and this would hasten death on the cross. This is what the Jews wanted done to Jesus, Jesus, who is Yahweh, who led them out of the wilderness, Jesus, who is literally the one that said He's their good shepherd, the shepherd who frees them, who gives them green pastures, Jesus, the one that rescued them from their oppression in Babylon. This is Yahweh God that they're doing this to in human flesh. Having scourged Jesus, He delivered Him to be crucified, to be executed. If you were there, you may have been able to see some of Jesus' organs at this point. And sitting here today, just going through Mark 15, we can definitely see His heart, can't we? He went through that for us, sinners, that He determined to rescue. So see the irony of it all. The innocent king is condemned as a criminal. In Acts 3, the apostles are preaching to the leaders of Israel. They're bold now. They were scared before. They're bold now because Jesus was raised from the dead. And in Acts 3, they say, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Peter goes after the leaders of Israel and says, you denied the holy and righteous one. Here's the irony of it all. And you demanded a murderer be released to you, Barabbas. This situation in Mark 15 goes down in Jewish history, Jewish Christian history. And Peter goes after the chief priests and said, that was Barabbas's cross, and you gave it to Jesus. That cross was Barabbas' cross. He should have been on that cross. 
It's likely that the two thieves on the cross were also those who committed insurrection with Barabbas. Yet there are two men there that are guilty and one man there that's not guilty, that's treated as guilty. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of Israel. And you know this, brothers and sisters, that wasn't just Barabbas' cross, was it? Who else's cross was it? It was our cross. Peter, the man behind the Gospel of Mark, said this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then He says this, By His wounds you have been healed. Jesus having His flesh ripped open, having His body pinned to the cross, nailed to the cross, did so, bore our sins in His body so that we would live to righteousness and die to sin. That wasn't just Barabbas' cross, that was our cross. I think there's an important implication here, and I'll finish with this. Remember that Mark is writing to suffering Christians. Mark's writing to Christians who are oppressed by who? The Roman Empire. And he's showing them their Messiah that was found guilty by the Roman Empire, that was crucified by the Roman Empire, handed over by the Jews. So Jesus' enemies are the ones that are mistreating the people of God a few decades later. And Mark's writing to those people of God. And they know the rest of the story. They know that he rose three days later. They know that he's alive still. They know that he ascended to heaven. They know that his presence is with them. They know that, but they're still being persecuted. They're still suffering. So, I say to you, suffering Christian, and I don't know why you might be suffering. Maybe you're suffering at the hands of someone else. You're being mistreated. Maybe you're suffering because of your own sin. Maybe you're suffering because of persecution. I don't know why you're suffering, but all of us Christians are sufferers. So, let this reality hit you. You are suffering, but you're also a saint. You may be persecuted. You may be treated as garbage, and you don't deserve that because you're a child of God. So, you're treated as garbage, but you're, you're a child of God. Treated poorly by someone that you know and love. Maybe you're even treating yourself poorly because of your sin, yet you are a child of God. Suffering Christians see the irony. Jesus suffered and He's victorious. You suffer and you are victorious. This week I had a book recommended to me by um, a pastor. It's a new book. I haven't read this yet, but I, I love the title. It's by Michael Emlett. It's called Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners. The thesis of the book is we are all at the same time saints, sufferers, and sinners. Jesus condemned as a criminal while at the same time being the literal king of the world, literally the son of God, literally the son of man. So, if you are suffering as a Christian, you are thinking of yourself right now as a sufferer and rightly so. You might even be thinking of yourself right now as a sinner and rightly so. But if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross and the fact that he rose again three days later and that, that sacrifice has fulfilled 
the price. It, it, it's paid the price for your sins. If you trust in that, you're not just a sufferer, you're not just a sinner, but more importantly, you're a saint. You're a child of God. You're victorious in Him. Let that encourage you. Why do I point this out? Because Jesus very soon is going to be executed on that cross. The slain king is going to be slain before us in this chapter, and we're going to see it again. And ironically, he said that he's going to live again after he dies. He's going to rule again. He told the council, he told the high priest, you're going to see the Son of Man coming (laughs) in glory again. That's the irony of it all. I love the book of Revelation because it portrays Jesus as the slain one, the lamb, over and over again. But it puts the word lamb with lion. And it says the lamb overcomes. And it says the slain lamb is standing and victorious. That's the reality that we know. Revelation 1.5, this letter is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Jesus is put to death by the greatest superpower in the world at that time, and yet John writes later, maybe 60 years later, and says that he's the king of all kings on the earth. Revelation 17.14, Christ's enemies will make war on the Lamb. Now, you take all the superpowers of the world and you put a Lamb there. Who's going to win? The superpowers. They've got tanks, they've got planes, they've got guns, they've got armies. They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with Him are called the chosen and the faithful. And in Revelation, those that are with Him are those that suffer. I'll end with this. Revelation 5. Notice the irony. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. There's no one to do something about the problems of the world. There's no one to fix everything. There's no one that can see this whole thing through. There's no one. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So what does the elder say to John? Look at the lion. Listen to verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Friends, the suffering lamb is the lion who rules over everything. He rules over all nations today. You are so concerned about the state of the world, but the lamb who was slain is the lion who is ruling. And he knows you, his sufferers. He knows his people. Take comfort in the victory of Jesus Christ. Take comfort comfort in the suffering of Christ. 
He did that for you as a demonstration of His love. The slain lamb is the king over all kings, and He's alive and victorious. And here's the beautiful part, and therefore so are we. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, the love that You've shown us here is astounding to us. I pray that You would free us from anxiety, free us from worry, give us strength in our suffering, give us boldness and steadfastness, allow us to trust in You as our victor, the Lamb who was slain, who is our Lion, our King of Kings. Thank You for keeping Your mouth quiet. Thank You for not trying to wiggle out of false charges. You did that for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer because of real charges and correct charges, the charges that say that we're sinners and should be condemned forever because we should be. But You stayed and suffered so that we wouldn't. We praise You. Amen.